Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Habakkuk chapter 3. We're continuing our journey through the book of Habakkuk. And this morning, I've entitled this message, When God Responds. And the idea behind this message is, what do we do when God responds to us? If you recall, the book of Habakkuk was written in the early 600 B.C., between the time the Babylonians had conquered the Assyrians in 612 B.C. and before they defeated the Egyptians at Carchemish in 605 B.C. And the premise of the book of Habakkuk is that Habakkuk is perplexed by all the evil that is happening in Judah. And yet, in his mind, God is not doing anything about it. He wonders, where are you, God? And as I've mentioned before, he is struggling what is called the theodicy of God. He is struggling with why God being good could permit so much evil to run rampant with no consequences. Habakkuk, in essence, is questioning the inaction of God. But God does reveal to Habakkuk that he's not going to allow Judah to get away with what they are doing. God assures Habakkuk that he is going to do something. He is going to do something that no one would believe. He's going to do something that wouldn't even make sense to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk 1, God made it clear to him that he was going to use Babylon, a ruthless, evil, pagan nation, to punish his own people because of their willful disobedience. And even though Habakkuk wanted God to do something, This is not what Habakkuk was expecting God to do. This is not what he wanted God to do. He was not expecting God to use the Babylonians, a nation who was more wicked and more evil than the nation of Judah. And as he continued to struggle with God, when we get to Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk decided to go to a watchtower, and he decided to wait on God and to wait on God until God responded to him. He wasn't going anywhere until he heard from God. And Habakkuk's waiting on God paid off as God did answer him. And as we saw last week, God gave Habakkuk several reasons as to why he could have confidence in him. Why Habakkuk could trust God. And Habakkuk realized that God did have a plan. That God did have a purpose for both Babylon and Judah. And Habakkuk realized that just as Judah was going to be judged for their sins, so was the nation of Babylon. But the difference was God was going to destroy. God was going to pour out his wrath on the nation of Babylon. But he was only going to use Babylon to discipline his own people. And the key verse, as we saw last week of the book of Habakkuk, is Habakkuk 2.4. And Habakkuk says this, Look, his ego is inflated, talking about the Babylonians. He is without integrity. But this is the key. The righteous one will live by his faith. What Habakkuk is letting us know is that the only way one can escape the wrath of God is by genuinely putting their faith in God, which is demonstrated by one's faithfulness to God. So the book of Habakkuk, it offers us a picture of a prideful people being humbled The Babylonians, whose egos were inflated, while the righteous God's people live by faith in him. And Habakkuk reminds us that while God may seem silent, while it may seem that God is not involved in our world, he always has a plan to deal with evil. 
And he always works out justice. And the example of the prophet Habakkuk encourages us as believers to wait on the Lord. Habakkuk encourages us to wait on God. And expecting that God will indeed work out all things for our good. But what we need to remember is that God doesn't work in our way. God doesn't work in our time. God doesn't work according to our plan. God doesn't work to carry out our agenda. God works in His way, in His time, to carry out His plan and to accomplish His purposes. And we may not understand what God is doing. We may not understand what is happening, but we can trust God because He has a plan and a purpose. And what God is doing may not make sense to us, but it doesn't have to. And after God responded to Habakkuk a second time in Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk had a choice of how now he was going to respond to God. The first thing he did when he was complaining to God and whining about the situation in Judah and thinking God wasn't doing anything, the first thing he did is he went to the watchtower and waited for God to respond, and God did. Now Habakkuk has another choice since God has responded. What is he going to do now? He could have been angry at God. He could have been bitter with God. He could have turned away from God. He could have not responded at all, but that is not what Habakkuk did. You know what Habakkuk did? He praised God. And just like Habakkuk had a choice, we have a choice in how we respond to God. We can be bitter. We can be angry. We can doubt God. We can give up on God, or we can praise Him. There was an elderly lady who was well known for her faith and for her boldness in talking about it. And she would stand on her front porch and shout, praise the Lord, so everyone around her could hear. Well, next door to her lived an atheist who would get so angry at her proclamation, he would shout, there ain't no Lord. He must have been from the south. But hard times set in on the elderly lady and she prayed for God to send her some assistance. She was in need. So she stood on the porch and she shouted, praise the Lord, God, I need food. God, I'm having a hard time. Please, Lord, send me some groceries. The next morning, she went out on her porch and saw a large bag of groceries and shouted, Praise the Lord! Well, the neighbor jumped from behind a bush and said, Aha! I told you there was no Lord. I bought those groceries. God didn't. The lady, the lady she started jumping up and down and clapping her hands and said, Praise the Lord! And then she said, not only did he send me groceries, but he made the devil pay, the devil pay for them. Praise the Lord. <laughs> this lady had it right in the midst of a difficult time. She turned a bad situation into a joyous occasion because she praised the Lord in a difficult situation, just like Habakkuk did. Habakkuk chose to praise the Lord. And this should be our only response, and this is the correct response we should have toward God. And this morning, as we look at Habakkuk 3, 1 to 15, we're going to see how Habakkuk praised God. As we go through this passage, I want you to think about how you respond to God. How do you respond to God working in your life, even when it doesn't make sense? And I want to challenge you to respond to God the way Habakkuk did. As Habakkuk is praising God for the answers to his questions that God gave him. And how God made it clear that evil will not triumph forever. There will be an end to evil. So let's read Habakkuk 3, 1 through 15. 
It says, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according to Shigionoth. Now that is a really strange term. It's so strange that many scholars have no idea what it means. But what they do know is it's referring to some kind of musical term. That word Shigionoth, this is the only place in Scripture that it appears. Well, there might be one other occasion, but it would be in Psalms in one place. But this is a musical term indicating some type of song. And it's possibly a song with rapid changes. But this is a hymn of praise to the Lord from Habakkuk. And as we read, you also see the word Selah. If you read Psalms, you know in the book of Psalms, that word Selah is often used as well. That is also a musical term, which probably means amen or hallelujah or we affirm what is true. So a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. Lord, I've heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. God comes from Timon, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens. The earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. Plague goes before him. Pestilence follows in his steps. He stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nation. The age-old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress, the tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea? When you ride on your horses, your victorious chariot. You took the sheath from your bow. The arrows are ready to be used with an oath. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains see you and shudder. A downpour of water sweeps by. The deep roars with its voice and lifts its waves high. Sun and moon stand still in their lofty residence at the flash of your flying arrows, at the brilliance of your shining spear. You march across the earth with indignation. You trample down the nations in wrath. You come out to save your people, to save your anointed. You crush the leader of the house of the wicked, strip him from foot to neck. You pierce his own You pierce his head with his own spears. His warriors storm out to scatter us, gloating as if ready to secretly devour the weak. You tread the sea with your horses, stirring up the great waters. When God responds to us, the first thing we need to do is we need to respond by praising the person of God. Notice in verse 2 how Habakkuk approaches God. He approaches God with humility. He says, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. He claims to stand in awe of the work of God. And he is praising God for his wondrous acts. Especially those associated with the preservation and deliverance of Israel during the time of the Exodus. Now Habakkuk didn't experience these things himself, but he has heard of them. He's read about them. He knows about the great acts of the mighty God. And when Habakkuk thought of all the deeds of God, he was overwhelmed. You know, when we think of all that God has done, it should cause us to be overwhelmed as well. When we think about all that God has blessed us with, we should be in awe of God. But the true measure of Habakkuk's humility is seen when you compare Verse 2 of chapter 3 with his earlier prayers in Habakkuk 1 and 2 and 13. There is a huge difference. We can see the change that has taken place in Habakkuk's life. In verse, verse one, uh, chapter 1 verse 2 he says, How long, Lord, must I call for help? 
or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Verse 13, why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? That was Habakkuk's attitude just a couple of chapters ago. Now we can see a total transformation has taken place in Habakkuk's life. His attitude has completely changed. And what has caused that transformation is chapter 2. In chapter 2, as we saw last week, he chose, he chose to trust God. Habakkuk chose to put his confidence in God, and that made a difference in his life. And I want to share with you this morning, when you choose to trust God, it will make a difference in your life as well. Does this mean his first prayers were bad? Does this mean what he prayed in the beginning was wrong or disrespectful? No. Habakkuk was grieved by the sins of Judah. Habakkuk was hoping that revival would come. And when it did not come, he had every right to inquire of God about the situation, about what was happening. And what we need to understand is we can go to God anytime we want. And we can ask God the kind of questions that Habakkuk asked. We can ask God the hard questions. And God is okay with that. Just like he was okay with Habakkuk answering him those questions. Why? Because God has an answer for every question we have. There is no question we can have that God does not have an answer for. And we think about the devastating historic flooding that just took place in eastern Kentucky. The numerous lives that were lost. How families lost everything. How there was one family who lost four of their children because they couldn't hold on to them as the flood overwhelmed them. And I'm sure those people this morning are asking the question that Habakkuk may have asked. Why God? Why is this happening? Why did this occur? But I pray they would have the same response as Habakkuk did. And even though they've been overwhelmed by the flood, they would instead choose to be overwhelmed by the Creator. So what changed in Habakkuk's life? It's simple. He took his mind off the Israelites. He took his mind off himself. He took his mind off the Babylonians. He took his mind off what was happening and he focused on God. You see, when he was looking at the situation from a human perspective, he was seeing the difference between the relative goodness of Israel and the badness of Babylon. And it seemed great to him. God, why are you using such a wicked nation to punish our people who are much better than they are? You see, but once he chose to look to God, and once he saw the righteousness and the holiness of God, this difference between the people of Judah and the Babylonians seemed to fade away. And the relative goodness of Israel did not matter anymore because he saw that both Babylon and Israel and even himself fell short of the standards of God. He stopped thinking about his own nation. He stopped thinking about the Babylonians. And he began to think about the holiness and the justice of God. You know, many of our problems can be traced to our persistence and looking at our problems themselves from our perspective instead of looking at them from God's perspective. And that's an issue of misplaced focus. Because when we see things from God's perspective, the only conclusion we can come to is that we are sinful and God is not. As Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
All that matters is our sinfulness and God's holiness. And it does no good for us to come to God and say, well, I'm not perfect, God, but I know I'm better than my neighbor. I know I'm better than my co-worker. I know I'm better than, than my friend. I go to church, I give, I serve. I think you need to listen to me. But instead, we need to say, God, it's only by your grace that I can come before you. God, I don't deserve anything from you, but I come before you because you have invited me into your presence as a sinful person. You see, only when we recognize who God is and who we are, and only when we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, can we approach God humbly like Habakkuk did. And if we pray like this, God will hear our prayer and answer our prayer. Because we must understand that apart from Christ, we have no real standing before God. Apart from Christ, as Isaiah 64, 6 says, our righteousness is like filthy rags. And we are not to approach God like we are owed something because we think we are better or have more faith than someone else. It's only when we abandon all thoughts of being better that we can approach God with genuine humility. And not only did Habakkuk approach God with humility, though, he also approached God with adoration. There's an acrostic on how to pray. It's called the Acts Acrostic. I'm sure many of you are very familiar with it. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, the, the model for the order in which we are to say our prayers. And as I said, A is for adoration or worship. And what that means is we to ascribe worth to God because of who He is and what He's done. And this deservedly should come first in our prayers. When we come to God, we first need to recognize who He is. And our adoration of God should dominate our prayer. It should take the most time, not the least amount of time. But often in prayer, we focus more on what we want to say to God than on God Himself. We tend to focus on ourselves. We tend to focus on our needs. We tend to focus on our requests rather than on God and on what we want instead of what God wants and who God is. You see, only after Habakkuk approached God humbly and recognized his true worth and great deeds did he bring his questions before God. And he asked God to revive and renew his work in these years. Habakkuk was very familiar with God's miracles throughout history on Israel's behalf. And he's asked God to do again what he has already done. Habakkuk was not content with just hearing about the greatness of God. He wanted to experience. He wanted to be part of it. He desired to have a personal encounter with him. Because in Habakkuk's day, supernatural intervention from God was not seen as often as it once was because of the people's willful disobedience to him. Habakkuk was asking God to show his works more. He was asking God to do a new work. He was praying for revival. And he knows that if God is sending the Babylonians to invade Judah, that God will build a new work out of the disaster of the invasion. And he asked God to do this in our day or our time or our years. What is this referring to? It's the day of the Babylonian invasion. He is asking for God to send revival, for God to renew them in the midst of bad times, in the midst of invasion and destruction. And I want you to think about the fact that, you know when revivals usually begin? They usually begin in bad times. 
Isaiah 44, 3, God says, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. The Great Awakening in the 1730s and 40s, it was a religious revival that impacted the English colonies in America. And the movement came at a time when the idea of secular rationalism was being emphasized. Passion for religion had grown stale. Does that sound like our nation today? And Christian leaders often traveled from town to town preaching the gospel, emphasizing salvation for sins, and sharing the beliefs of Christianity. And the result was a renewed dedication toward God, toward Scripture. And many historians believe the Great Awakening had a lasting impact on various Christian denominations in the American culture at large. This one, you had great preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and John Wesley who came on the scene. But when revival happens, God comes down on a spiritual desert. And I would say today, we are living in a spiritual desert. We are living in bad times. I don't know if you know it or not, but the fastest growing religion is called the religion of nuns. People who claim to have no religion. I think it's close to 40% now. Almost 40% of people in our nation claim to have the religion of nuns. No religion whatsoever. We are in a spiritual desert. And we need to pray for God to do a new work. We need to cry out for revival. We need to desire to experience the greatness of God. And we need to ask God to to move in our world. We need to ask for revival, for God to expand his kingdom, and for God to do miracles in the lives of our friends and loved ones. And like the last of Habakkuk's petition says, we need to ask God in his wrath, remember mercy. He says, in your wrath, God, remember your mercy. And I want you to recall to you that mercy means to not get what we deserve. Habakkuk is asking for God to show mercy on his people as he pours out his wrath through the use of the Babylonians. This is an incredible request to bring before God because Habakkuk knew that because God is the God of mercy, he needed to pray for mercy. He knew he couldn't find mercy in anyone else but God himself. And in this one little phrase, we see two aspects of God's character counterbalanced. Habakkuk understood that God hates sin but at the same time is merciful to sinners. And naturally and understandably so, Habakkuk hopes to see more of the mercy of God than the wrath of God. But he also recognizes that wrath against sin is an essential part of who God is. You know, we like to focus on God's grace and God's mercy, and that's, that's wonderful because we need that. But we also need to focus on the wrath of God as well. You know, several years ago, there was a Christian denomination that removed from their hymnal the song, In Christ Alone. They removed it for this reason. Because of one of the lyrics says this, On the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They didn't like that phrase, the wrath of God was satisfied because of the cross. But when I read scripture, that's exactly what happened on the cross. The wrath of God was satisfied. Why? Because of the mercy of God. And we need to realize that because God is a holy God, He is both a merciful God and a wrathful God. And we can't truly understand the grace and mercy of God unless we understand the wrath of God. 
Because the mercy of God and the grace of God is what spares us from the wrath of God. You see, without God's mercy, God's wrath would completely destroy us. We would have no chance. Without God's mercy, God would not have sent His Son Jesus into the world to die for our sins. Without God's mercy, there would be no opportunity for sinners who deserve only judgment to receive grace. So today, we need to pray like Habakkuk did. God, send revival. God, do a new work. And God, in your wrath, remember your mercy. We need to respond to God by praising the person of God. The second point I want to make is we need to praise the power of God in verses 3 through 7. He also praised the power of God. And notice these verses are written in third person and talk about the God delivering his people. And the best way to describe these five verses are, are with the words theophany. And theophany means a visual and visible manifestation of God and terror. And in verse 3 he said, God comes from Timon, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. Do we, Anthony, do we have that PowerPoint slide of the... If you see in the bottom center here, Mount Sinai. In Scripture, that is also Mount Paran. If you look at Deuteronomy 32.2, Mount Paran is the same as Mount Sinai. And then if you follow up through the Gulf of Aquaba and you go up to Edom, that is known as Taman. Edom is also known as Taman, the land of the south. Why is it called the land of the south? Because it's the south of the nation of Israel. And so what is Habakkuk referring to when he mentions from Taman to Paran? He's referring to the exodus that occurred when God delivered his people from Egypt. You know what he's doing? He's remembering the great deeds of God and what God did to deliver his people from the Egyptians. You see, from Habakkuk's perspective, God is the Holy One. He comes from an unexpected direction to deliver his people. And at Sinai, God told Israel that she had to be holy. Several times in Scripture, God told the Israelites, you need to be holy. Why? He said, because I am holy. And this meant that the nation of Israel had to be different. They had to be distinct from all that was around it. And the purpose for the nation of Israel was to be a witness, was to be a testimony of Yahweh, the true and living God, to other nations. You see, this is a reminder from Habakkuk that God still desired for his people to be holy. That God still desired for his people to be a witness. That what God said to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai still applied. God had not changed his mind about wanting his people to live a life of holiness. And just as God desired and commanded the Israelites to be holy, God desires and commands us to be holy as well. And for us as believers, the holiness, living a holy life, it's not a choice. Living a holy life should be a lifestyle. Our lives should be defined by the holiness of God. And then Habakkuk turns to the splendor of God. He says the splendor of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God covers the heavens and the earth. And Habakkuk is referring to the glory that comes as a result of God's appearance to his people throughout the course of history. 
And in verse 4, he says, His brilliance is like light. His rays are flashing from his hand. This is where his power is hidden. That phrase, rays are flashing from his hands, is a typical pose of divine warrior storm gods in the Near Eastern religion. It's the picture of, of a man standing with bolts of lightning with his hand raised up. This is the picture that Habakkuk is giving. And some say Habakkuk was applying this imagery to the true ruler of the storms, Yahweh, the God of Israel. And he was mocking the storm gods, showing that they were no match for Yahweh. He was saying God controls the storms, not anyone else. And when we read in Mark chapter 4, we read the miracle of Jesus when he calmed the storm in the sea. And they were, the disciples were amazed that Jesus said, Who is this that even the seas and the wind obey him? This is the God that Habakkuk is speaking of. Some say this phrase, razor flashing from his hands, refers to the Shekinah glory of God, which is a visible manifestation of God on earth whose, whose presence is portrayed through a natural occurrence. He's referring to the pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night as God leads the Israelites through the wilderness. Both of these explanations are plausible because both fit the context. But most likely, Habakkuk was referring to the only other place in Scripture where this description is given. It's the one given of Moses as he descended from Mount Sinai after being in the presence of God. In Exodus 34, 29 through 30, this is where we see this same description. Exodus 24, 29 and 30. 34, 29, there it is. It says, as Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he descended the mountain, he did, realize, he did not realize that the skin of his face shone as a result of his speaking with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. You see, because of Moses encountering God, Moses was different. Moses was changed. His face became radiant. The Hebrew, the actual Hebrew is his face was horned. And horns symbolize the, the rays shining forth from his face after being in the presence of God. And like Moses and Habakkuk, when we encounter God, when we see or experience the glory of God, we should be changed by God. It should cause us to praise him and worship him. And then after referring to the majesty of God in verses 5 through 7, Habakkuk turns his attention to the power of God. He says the plague goes before him and pestilence follows in his steps. The words translated for pestilence and plague were familiar in the Canaanite culture as, as both were names of deities they worshipped. And Habakkuk could be mentioning them in, in this way once again to demonstrate God's power over other gods. Remember, the Babylonians worship many gods. And so by using this imagery, he is saying that the God of Israel is the only one true and living God. He's also letting it be known that plague and pestilence are weapons at God's disposal that he can use at any time. And we saw God do exactly that when he freed his people from Egypt with the ten plagues upon Egypt. Each plague that God used against the nation of Egypt was aimed at an Egyptian god. And he was showing that the Egyptian gods were no match for him.
You see, God's presence was so real and so powerful that even the nations were frightened. Verse 6, he stands and shakes the earth. He looks and startles the nation. The old mountains break apart. The ancient hills sink down. His pathways are ancient. I see the tents of Kushan in distress, the tent curtains of the land of Midian tremble. You see, the mountains and the hills crumble because of the power of God. Nothing and no one can stand up to God's power. And then in verse 7, he gives an example of a nation who trembled because of God's power and God's presence. He mentions Kushan. The reference here is the Bedouin tribe in the same vicinity as Midian. And you have to go back to Judges 3, the land of Midian, and, and when Gideon fought the Midianites. You see, Kushan and, uh, Kushan and Midian knew of God's almighty acts on behalf of Israel during the Exodus in the, in the wilderness, and they were in distress. And he's referring to the Midianites who'd invaded Israel during the time of Gideon. Gideon had to be reassured of victory. By overhearing a Midianite recounting a dream about a barley loaf. I don't know if you remember the dream, but he had this dream of a barley loaf that rolled down this mountain and crashed into the tents of the enemy and destroyed them. And this was symbolic of Gideon and his men of 300 defeating the Midianite army of several, several thousands. Habakkuk is recalling the great things that God has done. And see, Judah could be encouraged that just as God delivered them from the oppression of Kushan several hundred years earlier, He was going to deliver them again. Remembering what God had done would provide comfort to Judah. And the past experience of God's people was a reminder that God who would come in judgment would also come in deliverance. And in our lives, our past experience with God should give us comfort. Our past experiences with God should give us peace, should give us joy, should give us hope. And we need to remember, as the song says, there is nothing that our God can't do. It says, there's not a mountain He can't move. Oh, praise the name that makes a way. There's nothing that our God can't do. We need to remember the only thing that will deliver us, the only thing that will give us hope, is the unmatched power of God. You see, God is the only one who can calm the storms in our lives. God is the only one who can cause the darkness to retreat. God is the only one who can give us hope where there seems to be no hope. And instead of focusing on what God has not done, we need to focus on what He has done and what He can do. And we need to praise Him for His power. The last thing I want to share with you is we need to respond to God the way Habakkuk did. Not only praising the person of God and praising the power of God, but also by praising the purposes of God. Habakkuk goes from third person to second person. He asks several rhetorical questions whose obvious answers and no. In verse 8 he says, Are you angry at the rivers, Lord? Is your wrath against the rivers or is your rage against the sea when you ride on your horses your victorious chariot? You see, God was not angry with the rivers. God was not angry with the sea. When Habakkuk asked God about his anger and his wrath and his rage in regard to the rivers and seas, he is referring to the dramatic intervention of, of God when he parted the Red Sea, when he parted the Jordan River, which were examples of God of using his power for the purpose 
of delivering his people. And in verses 8 through 10, Habakkuk is making the statement that God is truly sovereign. That God is the only one who is over nature. And when you read verses 9 and 10, the chariots in verse 8 are the thunderclouds. He says in verse 8, he says, you ride on your horses, you're victorious chariot. He's referring to thunderclouds. Where do we get that? Psalm 104.3, he says, he makes the clouds his chariot. He's also referencing another god of the Babylonians. The Baal. He's referencing Baal, who was the Canaanite god of fertility. And Baal was considered to be the god of the rain and the storms and the rider of the clouds. That was the one of the main ways that, that Baal was described in Canaanite literature is riding the clouds. And Habakkuk, once again, he was making a mockery of false god. He was directly attacking the false gods. Because at God's command, his thunderclouds, not Baal's, would flood the earth. And what he had in mind was probably the flooding that took place during the time of Noah. And then verse 11 He says not only can God flood the earth because he controls nature, he also said that God can make the sun and the moon stand still. When did God do that? Joshua 10, 12 through 14. Real quick, if we turn to Joshua 10, 12 to 14. There was a time when God made the sun and the moon stand still as Joshua and his army were in battle. It says, on the day of the Lord... On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Sun stands still over Gideon and moon over the valley of Ajalon. The sun stood still, the moon stopped, the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Isn't this written in the book of Jashar? So the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed its setting almost a full day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to the voice of a man because the Lord fought for Israel. Who caused the sun and the moon to stand still? God did. Why? To deliver his people from the Amorites. So who is the target of God's wrath? Is it nature? No, it's not nature. The target of God's wrath is the wicked. Verse 12, he says, You, God, march across the earth with indignation and trample down the nations in wrath. God makes it very clear to Habakkuk that no one is going to escape God's punishment for their wicked deeds. Everyone is going to pay for the evil they have done or will do. God is saying, my justice is certain. Not just for Judah, not just for Babylon, but for any nation and person who opposes me. You see, God pouring out his wrath on the nations had a purpose. The purpose was just not to judge the wicked but it was also to deliver his people from the wicked. And in verses 13 through 15, we see that God did exactly that. Habakkuk understands that God will save his people. He says, you come out to save your people, to save your anointed. And this wasn't a maybe. This wasn't a possibly. This wasn't I might. This is I definitely will save your people. This is a done deal. And some have said the anointed may refer to a past leader of Israel. Others say it could be a reference to the Messiah. But the argument there is why would the Messiah need to be saved? Because Jesus came to save, not to be saved. 
The best understanding of anointed is that by delivering the people from Egypt, by delivering his people from foreign nations and from the Babylonians, you know what God did? He preserved the genealogy of Jesus. How did God do that? Because if God would have completely destroyed his people, especially the nation of Judah, since Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, there could not have been a Messiah the way God promised. So in order for the genealogy of Jesus to be as God stated in the Old Testament, he had to preserve the nation of Judah to preserve the line of the Messiah. Several places in Scripture, God promised the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. I don't have time, but Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Isaiah 11, 1 through 2. Hebrews 7, 14 through 16. All those Scriptures, Old Testament, make it very clear that Jesus, the Messiah, would come from the tribe of Judah. Who is God about to punish? The tribe of Judah. If he destroys the tribe of Judah, there is no Messiah the way God stated. You see, one day God will deliver those who have been justified by their faith. And when is that day? Well, in Habakkuk's day, it was after the nation of Babylon. He used another pagan nation to free his people, King Cyrus and the nation of Persia. But what about our day? When are we going to be justified by our faith? When is God going to punish all those who do evil today? It's going to be at the second coming of Christ when Jesus returns. You see, just like Habakkuk promised, those who are justified by faith will live. And while the righteous will live, God makes it clear that the leader of the house of the wicked will be crushed. Not only will the Babylonian leader be crushed, but so will the leader of evil at Christ's return be crushed. And evil will be done away with once and for all. And in verses 14 and 15, Habakkuk says, The forces of evil foolishly storm out to scatter the people of God, thinking they can win, thinking they can defeat God. But God intervenes, he overpowers them, and he kills their leader with his own sword. And then Habakkuk began to use imagery that's very reminiscent of the description of Israel's army over the of, of Israel's victory over the Egyptian and Pharaoh at the Red Sea. So what do we see in these verses? We see the answer to Habakkuk's question in 113. Habakkuk said, "Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up the one who is more righteous than himself?" God answers Habakkuk's question. We see an awesome display of God's judgment on a wicked world for what purpose? The purpose of delivering those, his own people. Those who've been justified by faith. And God promised because he is holy. He promised that the wicked will be punished. They will pay for what they have done and the righteous will be vindicated. And we will live in the presence of God forever. Just as God acted at the Red Sea, just as God acted at the Jordan River, just as God acted on Joshua's long day of the battlefield, God will act in his great day of salvation. I think there's a great way to sum up Habakkuk's prayer. There's a song called, We Will Remember. Those are some of the lyrics. We will remember, we will remember, we will remember the works of your hands. We will stop and give you praise, for great is your faithfulness. You're our creator, our life sustainer, deliverer, our comfort, our joy. 
Throughout the ages, you've been our shelter, our peace in the midst of the storm. With signs and wonders, you've shown your power. With precious blood, you showed us your grace. You've been our helper, our liberator, the giver of life with no end. We will remember, we will remember, we will remember the works of your hands. We will stop and give you praise for great is thy faithfulness. And then it says, when we walk through life's darkest valleys, which Habakkuk was doing, we will look back at all you've done. And we will shout, our God is good, and he is the faithful one. When God responds to us, how do we respond? Just like Habakkuk did. Just like this song says. We need to respond to God in praise. We need to praise him for his purpose. We need to praise him for his power. We need to praise him for his person. We need to remember the works of his hands. That he is our creator, our sustainer, our liberator, our helper, our deliverer, our shelter, our comfort, our joy, our peace. And when things look bleak, when things look hopeless, we need to remember what God has done. We need to remember that he has been faithful, that he is faithful, and that he will be faithful. We need to remember that he is the faithful one. Let's pray. Father God, we just come before you this morning, God, and we just thank you that, Lord, that you've done so much for us. And Father, when we come into your presence, may we reflect on who you are. That you are the Holy One, that you are the Loving One, that you are the Righteous One, that you are the Faithful One, that you are the Merciful One and the Gracious One. Father, may we reflect on your power and what you've done in our lives. And may we remember, God, that there is nothing that you can't do. And Father, may we remember your purposes. And Father, your purpose in sending Jesus was one so we could give our life to you, so we could be delivered from our sin. And Father, then your desire is for us to live for you and to be a light for you in darkness. So Father, as we go through this life and we wonder what you're doing or where you're at or God, why are you silent? May we reflect on your person and your power and your purpose. And may we never forget that you are the faithful one. And Father, if there's somebody here this morning who's never given their life to you, I pray they would do that. They would come forward and say, I want to give my life to Jesus like Jude did, like Clay did. I want to make Jesus the Savior of my life and I want him to be the Lord of my life. Father, maybe those of us who've made that decision to follow you. Father, maybe we haven't responded to you with praise the way that Habakkuk did. Father, maybe we've become angry. Maybe we've become bitter. Maybe we've become doubtful. Maybe we've just thrown our hands up. But God, may we respond with praise. And may we focus on you and not what's happening around us. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your time and for the time in your word this morning. And it's in your name we pray, amen. If you're here this morning, you've never given your life to Jesus, we'd love to show you how you can give your life to Christ, how you can have eternal life, how you can be forgiven of your sins, and how you can personally know the faithful one. 
If you're here and you've given your life to Christ, I have one simple question for you. How do you respond to God? With bitterness, with anger, with doubts, or with praise? And maybe this morning, instead of focusing on what is happening around you or in your life or in your world, or focusing on what God has not done, maybe this morning God has shown you that you need to start focusing on Him, His person, His purposes, His power, and begin focusing on what He has done. Or maybe you just want to come to this altar and pray for revival. Maybe you want to come and pray for revival in our community, in our state, in our nation, in our world. Or maybe God's leading you to make other decisions, whether it's baptism. Maybe you've given your life to Christ, but you haven't yet made that step of following Him in baptism like Jude and Clay did. Maybe God's leading you to be part of our church. Maybe there's other decisions God is leading you to make. This altar is open for you, and I'll be down at the front to speak to you during this time of commitment. Do as God leads. Let's stand as we respond to God.